You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. What it do, Maggie? How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Uh, you, we, so is the market today, right? U.S. equities <laughs> uh, in the green across the board. The Nasdaq extending that rebound for another day. And closing, looks like we're closing um, with buying right into the close, maybe at the highs of the day, the Nasdaq up 2%. And we see that 10-year Treasury um, continue to edge back. Uh, hovering around 1.93 percent, so we're edging back from that two percent level. Uh, there's so much going on underneath, uh, you know, those headlines. So, what's jumping out from your dashboard? Yeah, I mean, what's jumping out from our dashboard is that you know the market is very clearly starting to shift towards pricing in uh, this sort of post Omicron bounce dynamic we've been talking about in our research. Very similar to the post Delta bounce uh, in economic activity, both in terms of uh, duration and magnitude. Probably not going to get the same positivity we got out of the stock market and, and risk assets in the month of October, uh, but certainly we're, we're well on our way to looking like uh, we might begin some of it. Yeah. So is I, uh, you know, the big question is is it sustainable though, right? Is this a is this a bounce and then we're headed for a leg lower, or does it feel like this can kind of carry through for a bit? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's so it's in terms of how we think about the world, one through the regime segmentation lens, but also through the lens of you know, changes, impulses in, in policy, impulses in growth and inflation. And we really don't really get into a bearish concoction as it relates to those 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 factors and those variables until you get into the springtime. Um, and I would argue this sort of post-Omicron bounce dynamic uh, may delay that uh, by a month or two. So um, if, you, you know, if in terms of, you know, if you're a bear out there and you're looking to short stocks and you're looking to, to put on some volatility trades or, or, or you know, kind of CDX and all that that sexy stuff uh, to, to play for a big market decline, you're probably going to have to wait a couple of months just to kind of get this through the system. You know, we have a, a big C, uh, CPI number coming out tomorrow. I mean, inflation, the inflation narrative has really been dominating. Looking at your note today, you say inflation is tied with deflation. Um, walk us through what you're looking at there, because it's on two different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, so uh, so th those are the nomenclatures for our uh, market regime outcasting process or our grid regime process in general. And what inflation means is that the market is pricing in growth slowing with an inflationary bias. And what deflation means, uh, the market is pricing in uh, uh, growth slowing with a disinflationary bias. And in terms of the markets that are signaling that, we, we, we sort of run our volatility adjusted momentum signal process uh, across 42 markets in that model to determine what the, what the dominant regime is. Those two markets are pricing are, are sort of um, kind of tied now in terms of the signals that they're getting or garnering rather. And so what that really tells you is that the market is is confused on rather the, the direction of inflation right now. We're sort of you know the market's not too uh, too too convinced that inflation is going to slow, but it's also not too convinced that it's going to continue to accelerate materially from here. But what it is convinced of, obviously, is that growth is likely to to, to remain on its trend lower, irrespective of this sort of bounce. Um, that we are likely to see uh, uh, post-Omicron. 
I want to pick up on that growth uh, aspect in a moment, but uh, the market's not the only one confused. The Fed is confused, it, it appears, as well. We had Atlanta Fed. We've been hearing from uh, several of them this week. Atlanta Fed President Bostic today saying he's forecasting three hikes, could be four, but it, he cautioned that it's going to have the central bank's just going to have to wait until they see how the economy responds. I sat down with Vincent uh, Dulay-Luard of Stonex yesterday, who said part of the calculation that they're going to need to do, that we're all going to need to do is gauging consumer have a listen to a clip of that i think they're still going to try to like maintain the myth that it's kind of you know slow down by the end of the year but you can already see them kind of hedging their bets at least for, for, for january maybe february um and then i think they're just going to try okay like let's hike rates, see what happens and, yeah. and we'll be in this kind of feedback loop between the two but again it takes time i mean if you look at prior hiking cycles, it takes at least 12 months for monetary policy to start having an effect on the real economy. And our timing for when this inflation is going to slow is, is, you know, I think if it doesn't slow within four or five months, then we have a problem. And one last thing I would mention, which is more on the psychological side, is that I would say that after a certain time, inflation is inflationary. Mm -hmm. um, the longer this lasts, the more people start to adjust their behavior. And it's not happening very quickly in the US because again, we haven't seen inflation in four years, right? So most people are like, well, you know, I'll just wait to buy, right? For example, used cars, I'd like to buy a car. I'm not gonna buy a used car now, it's crazy, right? So you just wait, like, no, it's been a year. And like, at some point, you're, we all, Glencare is gonna die, right? So you're gonna have to buy. And then you could flip in your head, hold on. This thing keeps increasing. Like if I keep waiting, I'm gonna pay 20% more. And then you start mm -hmm. pushing forward your purchases, which is the inflation, the inflation expectation channel, which I don't think we've hit yet. But the longer we have this, you know, you go to a grocery store in New York or San Francisco, I mean, their entire shelves are empty. Like it, it yeah. looks like some faces, like, like a developing country. And 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 the mentality, like if it were Latin America, people would already be stuck buying stuff. It's only because we're in the US where we have this kind of um, patience with inflation, but the more time passes, the more we can eroding this capital. Such a great point. And we also talked about where to find protection from short-term inflation pressures and the case for what Vincent calls active intangible investing. Really, really interesting conversation. Uh, the full interview is available on Essential Plus and Pro Tiers. Um, but yeah, sort of gauging uh, consumer psychology, that's not easy, especially when we haven't been in an inflationary period in a really long time, Darius. Yeah, so there's a, a myriad of ways to gauge consumer psychology. There's a ton of surveys. Um, you know, it's it's hard to pin down which survey to look at when. Um, just as a general rule of thumb, the conference board surveys here in the U.S. will give you a little bit more color on the labor market, or or they were a little bit more sensitive to labor market dynamics, whereas the University of Michigan surveys tend to be a little bit more sensitive to uh, inflation dynamics. But but taking it to the conference board surveys, I would tend to agree with Vincent's uh, general take that there are second round uh, impacts of inflation. Um, second round of or second order effects on inflation that are really just a function of the time you spend in an inflationary environment. Um, and what I mean by that is I think we seen we're starting to see evidence of that. Um, you know, if you put up this chart I, I sent where we show uh, the conference boards buying intention surveys, we normalize it to the month of October uh, because the month of November is really where the inflation narrative really changed. If you go back to um, that October CPI print that we got, I want to say on November 10th or something like that. Um, that's, you know, that one that jumped up to 6.9%. It really kind of caused the Fed to do an about face and drop the transitory language out of its, um, out of, out of its uh, forward guidance. Uh, you know, that, that print was, you know, really since that print, we've seen 
an increase in consumer buying intentions in automobiles, consumer buying intentions in homes, major appliances, and consumer intentions on, on going on vacation. And one, I'll say two things. One, that's incongruent with the consumer spending data we've received since then. It's actually gone down and contracted pretty considerably in, in, in the month of December. Uh, but that, that's neither here nor there for this point. The real point is that, hey, look, consumers are now responding to this persistency of inflation mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, sort of chasing uh, chasing goods and services at a, at a faster pace because they ultimately realize that their incomes, which are declining on a real basis and have been for several months, uh, may not be able to buy them as much purchasing power as they had as they thought they would months ago. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Let's go back to the growth part of, of your equation, and that's that's concerning. So, uh, you know, in, in either scenario, you see a slowdown in growth. You know, when could, when will we see that? How bad will it be? Because you don't get the sense that that's pr- fully priced in yet or priced in at all. No, not at all. I mean, it's it's... You know, look, the, the various pockets of the markets are very clearly far from their all-time highs and very much likely not to recover their all-time highs. And I think the, the sort of, if you think about how markets typically peak, right, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series of sort of rolling capitulations, if you will, in terms of different sectors and style factors giving up the ghosts. And in our opinion, that's exactly what we're experiencing now and what we're likely to continue to experience until this whole thing blows. Um, you know, so we're very uh, negative on the growth outlook, certainly relative to consensus. Um, you know, Bloomberg consensus still has uh, U.S. GDP for 2022 coming in at 3.8%, which is 160 basis points north of the five-year trend line through 2019. So the trend we were on prior to COVID. Um, it, to me, I, I think there's a lot of sort of explaining. They have a lot of economists at these Wall Street banks have a lot of explaining to do with respect to those forecasts. And the reason I say that is, one, we're going to see a, a pretty a near record fiscal contraction this year. We've been talking about that since going back to the fall. Uh, we're obviously going to see a considerable amount of monetary tightening this year. But then when you actually start to look at the data, the consumer intention, you know, sort of the, some of the data that would lead uh, a big sort of consumer spending boom that obviously is priced into some of those growth expectations, whether you look at uh, consumer uh, sort of income expectations, uh, we get that data through the conference board survey. You look at their uh, expectations for improvement in the labor market, the diffusion indices therein, we get that from the conference board survey as well. And then we look at some of these sort of um, ancillary measures of consumer wellness and financial health. And pretty much everything you look at, it says consumers are concerned about are their number one goals or their most important goals of, of this year are saving money for retirement, saving money, improving their financial health um, at the same time where there's their outlook on the labor market is starting to deteriorate. And more importantly, their outlook on their own incomes is already deteriorating on a trending basis. Mm-hmm. And so when you put those three things together, in the context of the fiscal monetary headwinds that we're likely to observe, I find it preposterous that investors uh, can sit there with a straight face and say we're going to have an above trend growth here this year. Yeah, that's so interesting. Should we believe those surveys and what consumers say? Uh, because you know, I, I say I, my most important thing is to save and, and fade on debt and do all the fiscally responsible things. But you know, American consumers have a reputation of the, you know the one thing that you can count on is they're going to spend. Um, maybe they spend less, maybe they spend more, but that but they're spenders. Um, well, yeah. Do you think that's changed? 
Yeah, and, well, no. I mean, what's what's changed is that they don't have any money. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you can't so spend money you don't have. <laughs> you can't spend money you don't have. And look, this showed up in a major way in the December uh, personal consumptions expenditure data. That's the broadest measure of consumer spending we get in the U.S. economy on a headline basis that contracted at a 12% annualized pace in mm -hmm. December. I mean, that's that's crazy. And what's really happening underneath the hood is that we've created a boom in the goods economy. You know, goods uh, demand and goods goods consumption was considerably north of its trend line prior to COVID, considerably north of that trend growth rate, that trend level. Um, now we're starting to give a lot of give back to that, and it's having impact in the economy. Uh, the goods consumption real, on a real basis cons uh, declined or, or contracted, crashed at a minus 32% pace in the month of December. Now, you could write it off and say there was pull forward in terms of holiday spending, and I would tend to agree. Um, we certainly saw that um, um, in, in the sort of October data, uh, didn't necessarily see it in the November data, but the real key takeaway is that, look, people are just going to run out of stuff to buy, right? You're not going to buy six houses. You're not going to buy, you know, you're not going to, you know, buy six cars. You know, you're not going to buy 10 washing machines and two dryers, you know, like that. At, the, at some point, that, that cycle comes to a head. And the issue for the economy this year, and this is why I continue to believe the big risk uh, for 2022 in terms of market repricing, is that we could potentially have a growth scare in terms of the speed of the deceleration back to the trend. Um, in the context of this services sector boom not materializing. And that the reason for that is because we're already showing a pretty considerable uh, pace back towards the trend in goods consumption, potentially even through trend, right, if people pull forward a lot of these purchases from future years. And so I, I think you know, if we don't get this services sector boom, we could be look out below for growth expectations and ultimately look out below for, for risk assets. So Let's get to some questions. Uh, this is from Goncalo on the exchange. Uh, Darius, I know you're calling for deflation in the next months, and you can tell us whether that's true based on the fact that the market's confused between inflation and deflation. I know you're calling for deflation in the next months. Is that possibly going to occur with rising energy prices, and will that sort of transfer to the economy? Is that could that be could that feed into that growth scare that you're worried about? Well, it's already asked that into the growth scare, right? With consumer incomes, if you look at real disposable personal income on a per capita basis, it's contracted at a 3% annualized pace in the month of December. Now, we've had some pretty squirrely numbers um, throughout the pandemic as a function of all the, the fiscal stimulus in here and there and taken and, and giving. But the reality is, ex-pandemic, that would be a recessionary number, right? Like, yeah. that's a pretty big deal and to have consumer spending, um, real disposable personal income per capita contracting at that at that pace. And it really just goes to show how much inflation is really taking a bite out of consumer purchasing power. Um, the one thing I would address in the question, you know, I think I mentioned this at the, at the beginning of the show, it's very likely that high frequency data bottom in the month of January and accelerate, you know, at least over the next couple of months, like here in February, most likely. And then certainly by the month of March, we'll see a pretty market acceleration off those January lows. Um, whether or not that bounces to be sustained is is, uh, is, is up for debate. We would argue it's very unlikely to be sustained well into the spring. Um, if anything, you might get at, at most, you know, two to three months of an acceleration off of these Omicron-driven January lows. And then from that point forward, it's very much likely we return to this trend of deceleration we've been on since the second quarter of last year. So uh, Basking Turtle on YouTube is asking, what are the possible catalyst signals for the end of a post-Omicron bounce? and yeah, the so realization this, of that deflationary regime. Yeah, absolutely. So this is stuff, I mean, by the way, everything I say is obviously being published in our research on a regular basis. So come check that out at 42macro.com. Um, so one thing we, we publish on every day 
or the two signals. So we call uh, the, the, if you there's sort of the two styles of, of 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 assessing market risk in terms of whether or not you need to make ma major portfolio changes. There's sort of your sudden stop risk, like something happened. We need to do. We need to get out of this burning movie theater quick. And then there's oh, I think there's a guy in the back of the movie theater playing with matches. And so we call that rolling stop risk. From a sudden stoppers perspective, we we sort of anchor on our volatility adjusted momentum signals and what we call our four horsemen of market risk. These are intra-market indicators that tell you whether or not the market is pivoting towards risk on and risk off. Um, that be the VVIX fix ratio, the high beta, low beta ratio, small cap, mega cap ratio, uh, and the value to growth ratio. When three of those four ratios are signaling um, are, are bearish from that perspective and, and making lower lows, that typically is a, is a warning sign that the market is about to go uh, no bid. Um, so right now we're not there yet in terms of uh, uh, meeting those signals, and I would suspect we're actually going to get less close to that, uh, less less close to, to hitting that signal uh, in the ensuing weeks as a function of this post Omicron bounce dynamic. Um, and then there's two, the rolling stop risk. Let's say post Omicron bounce catalyzes some some positivity uh, in asset markets over the next couple of weeks or maybe even a couple of months. You know, I'm sympathetic to it potentially lasting a couple of months, although I don't feel the need to make the call on that. Uh, the reality is you're going to start to see market internals really start to transition back towards defensive. And so, so one of the other analysis we look at um, is our dispersion analysis where we're trying to identify um, extremes in, 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 in leadership and, in, and more importantly, extremes and in flows into and out of various sectors and style factors. And right now, uh, those extremes and flows don't necessarily say the market is ready for a, a big drawdown. So um, investors have some time in terms of if they want to, you know, kind of if they're shorter term risk managers, they can take advantage of a post summer crime bounce and being long things like, you know, reflation, pure reflation plays, cyclicals and things of that nature. Um, that's certainly something that uh, would seem to be supported by our, our near term outlook. But if you're not that kind of investor and you're someone who doesn't ha have the ability or doesn't want to pay to have the ability to actually time that exit, then you're probably just you're probably better off doing um, what we would our research would suggest you do uh, for the balance of this year, which is maintain a defensive exposure. You know, take down your overall beta in your portfolio, your overall volatility to certain assets, your overall correlation to certain asset classes and and high volatile, high beta risk assets. You know, continue to buy bonds tactically, build up that position, build up some cash buffers. Because again, I I, I meant no words about this. The conditions are there for a thirty to you know twenty to thirty, potentially fifty percent market decline. Um, inequities. I, I, inequities. Yeah, the conditions are there now. You'd be a fool if you're sitting in my seat. You know, making calls like that, I, I think it's unnecessary to make calls like that. But the conditions are there through a variety of lenses, growth, monetary policy, fiscal policy, investor positioning. I mean, there's a lot of different sort of stools to the bear case that are very underappreciated by market participants, at least according to uh, my discussions with the institutional investors. Yeah, that, and that's that's flashing a massive warning sign. Absolutely. So th I think this speaks to James' question uh, on the exchange. What are your thoughts regarding shorting the QQQs? Yeah, so or, I mean, or puts out to mid-year. Uh, I say I would go beyond mid-year. I think that the party might get started by mid-year, certainly by, in our opinion, by May. I think you're going to start to run out of steam on any post-Omicron bounce dynamic by the month of April at the latest. Uh, maybe it's even shallower than that. Again, if we were, you know, if 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 there wasn't this sort of lofty growth expectation out there, I would be significantly less bearish. You know, and again, I, th I think the, I, I, it, let me take that back. Bearish is not a, a useful word. I would be less concerned about overall market risk. That that is a more useful way of saying about this. The issue, in my opinion, and the reason why you could have this post Omicron bounce dynamic actually materialize in markets 
is because growth expectations remained fairly robust. We are seeing supply chain disruption starting to ease a bit. So there is a community of investors out there that are naturally inclined to be bullish on stocks, be bullish on credit, and just be generally long of risk assets in general. They're going to look around and say, hey, look, well, things are still fine. The Fed's got a long way to go to tighten policy back to a neutral policy setting. So let's 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 buy this dip and, and, and take advantage of it. And those people are likely to be rewarded because when you look at things like the AAII bull bear survey, it got to an extreme point in recent weeks. Um, and typically what you find is there's a bullish resolution of that stuff, but it tends not to be you know lasting. And so the reality is, you know, sentiment did get very blown out uh, to the bear side in January. And that's partially why, you know, we were very content not to sell the lows uh, in January, as a lot of investors did. Let's not let's not forget someone had to sell the lows, otherwise we wouldn't have seen them. Um, and, you know, the reality is you could continue to see that that lift as a function of some investors kind of checking off some boxes on their more micro oriented fundamental views. Right. You know, I, I'm glad you brought up the supply chain because that is the kind of thing where if you were to see improvement that you could understand or that that would sort of create this feeling like combined with the fact that the mass mandates are falling, the supply chains are easing. OK, like, you know, it's go time. And you point out one indicator that you're watching, which is very interesting, Japanese machine orders. What are you seeing there? Yeah. So that number came out this morning. Uh, so that, in our opinion, is arguably the best hard data statistic to monitor as it relates to the global industrial cycle. Um, that chart there is uh, the red line is the machine tool orders growth rate um, overlay with the uh, OECD composite leading index time series for the global economy. And as you can see, it's more or less, you know, the same time series. And so that bounce that we saw in Japan, in Japan, Japanese machine tool orders in the month of January is, in our opinion, indicative of this post-Omicron bounce dynamic. You know, it's very like, so this is a leading indicator for growth. And so over the next couple of months, it's very likely we see, you know, other, you know, high frequency growth data, PMIs, sort of confidence measures. Um, kind of unthawed a bit from their January lows. And so that's what that's telling you. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. What, what, would, what would sort of argue for you to get, what would you be watching or looking for for you to feel a little bit more constructive on the growth outlook? Because, you know, clearly you see a, a, a marked slowdown after we get that kind of head fake of everything reopening. What would change your scenario? What's the, what is something that you're watching for as sort of the outlier? Like, okay, hang on a minute. Maybe the economy can withstand some of these more negative factors of yeah. higher interest rates, et cetera. Yeah, great question. Great question. So as you know, we're about as data dependent as any research provider on Wall Street. I, I make no bones about that statement. Um, you know, so we, we're very glued to all the data. We obviously run very sophisticated models. Um, that are now casting all these dynamics, the number one thing, in my opinion, that uh, we should all be focused on, are two, or sorry, two, probably two things. Number one would be uh, real income growth. Is mm -hmm. real income growth bottoming and starting to reaccelerate, or are consumers continue to be cash constrained and unable to sort of, you know, kind of hit the, uh, hit, lift the offer on a lot of these sort of goods and services that are out there? Um, and then number two, do, does consumer confidence materially improve in a way that would suggest that we actually are on a precipice of some sort of post-pandemic spending boom. Right now, consumer confidence is at a 10-year low, right? Like you look at the University of Michigan survey, and part of that reason it's at a 10-year low is because inflation expectations are at a you know near 15-year high, and consumer um, sort of financial, their, their assessment of their own 
kind of financial conditions, there's actually at a multi-year low, I think going back to uh, 2014. And so like, you know, this is, consumers are feeling the pinch of inflation. And right now the, you know, investors are doing their best to try to take advantage of being long of inflation in, in, in asset markets. But ultimately as that growth dynamic really starts to come under question, and again, there's no reason for it to come under question for the next couple of months. There's no, we're not gonna get any data that suggests growth is slowing at a material pace, potentially back to and through its trend until we get into the springtime, at least according to our model. So um, that in our opinion, you know, that's when you want to be kind of looking and confirming data that either agrees with that view or disconfirms that view at the margin. And that's what we do every day at 42 Macro. Mm. So is this why you're saying in your note that um, the, the kind of reflation trades exposure to things like emerging industrial materials are setting investors, uh, are set to force investors off the cliff? That's what you, that, that was your language. That seems pretty scary. Yeah, no, look, I, again, I, I keep, I go back to it, like, Again, you look at it from the lens of growth, the deltas on growth, the impulse on growth. You look at it through the lens of the impulse on, on monetary tightening, particularly with respect to the Fed's balance sheet. You look at it through the lens of the impulse on, on, on fiscal policy. And then you look at it through the sort of uh, dynamics associated with positioning and the household balance sheet. All four of those impulses, at least going back to uh, the, the crashes and market cycles we've studied going as far back as we can get the data, all four of those things are independently saying stocks could be down on S&P terms 20% at some point this year. Now, I would argue the, the liquidity conditions in financial markets are significantly worse than they've been in recent years. So what you think might be 20%, it could easily very well be 30% or something like that. Obviously, you're talking about like a 60, 70% decline in something like Bitcoin. Um, so, but going back to this chart, what we're showing in this chart, so this chart is our crowding analysis. What we're doing is trying to identify extremes in, in, in derivatives positioning um, to take advantage of sort of the you know near-term market risk. And and what we're showing on the x-axis is this, the, the, the one-year uh, z-score and two-month 25 delta skew. Uh, the y-axis is showing the volatility risk premium, the near-term volatility risk premium in these various assets. And what you typically find you know, are, are assets that are sort of poised to squeeze shorts and, and, and rally and, and have these sort of ferocious bounce um, tend to have elevated skew relative to the trend and elevated near-term volatility risk premium. And that unwind of that excess positioning tends to perpetuate some positivity. And so one thing we called our note this morning, and we actually called this out going back uh, last week as well. We said, hey, look, and this was last week, we said high beta and high yield, they're set up to squeeze investors. And that's obviously exactly what we got. And this morning, as you can see in the title of this chart, it's saying, hey, look, a lot of these pure reflation exposures, the kinds of places you want to be on this sort of post-pandemic, post-Omicron, pandemic transitioning to an endemic phase type recovery, are actually sort of, you know, kind of at extreme bearish positioning, you know, if you think about it from a near-term perspective in the options market. And so if you wanted to take advantage of that, that the trade is right there in front of you, that you can go put that on and, and, and get long of these types of exposures. Now, the problem is if you don't subscribe, you're probably not going to get the, the looks on when to sell those things as well, because those are exactly the types of exposures you don't want to be long if we're talking about going into a, a more material risk-off deflation style market that we ultimately expect to materialize by the middle of the year. Yeah. And this is where timing is going to be so critical. We have a question from Bonnie on the RV site. How does the lead up to the midterm elections play into your analysis? I, I think it already happened, to be quite frank. I mean, we mm -hmm. made this call back in uh, early November when we got that October CPI print. We said, hey, look, there's no more fiscal stimulus coming. Um, Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema are now in protect their own seat uh, mode as opposed to sort of protect the Biden administration mode. So I don't think the midterms will have much of an impact. If anything, it probably makes this whole thing worse, right? Because you're going to have 
in uh, uh, sort of you know people on the, the the side of the right, the Republicans are definitely going to say, look, these bozos can't run the country. They got you know you're you're filling it at the pump, you're filling it at the grocery store, you're filling it on rent because you know these guys can't get anything done. And so, in our opinion, that 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 discussion, that debate, that narrative out there that'll be extremely loud heading into the midterm elections, in our opinion, puts the Fed in a box. I mean, the Fed is already in a box, right? And this is part of the reason we're so negative. Is we're not just negative on you know these sort of impulse dynamics and positioning dynamics from a medium-term perspective, although I would argue plenty enough there to get you bearish. Um, the reason we think there's a lot of market risk this year, and I've been saying this on the program since going back um, to to, to the, probably the summer of last year, say, look, there's going to be a time next year, and this is now, we're in the year next year now, there's going to be a time where growth is decelerating at a, at a, at a, at a, at a potentially scary pace, where the Fed is out the launch with respect to policy rate tightening, and the Fed is out the launch with respect to uh, um, to contracting its balance sheet. There's no off-ramp uh, for the Fed for several quarters. There's going to be no signal from the labor market that they need to stop doing what they're doing. There's going to be no signal from the level of inflation that they need to stop doing what they're doing, at least not according to our projections on inflation, at least for another year or so. And so the only feedback loop the Fed can potentially receive is going to come through the lens of financial conditions. And obviously, as investors, the bull case can't be the Fed's going to pivot if the stock market's down 30%, right? That's not a bull case. That's a, that's a that's a buy the dip case. The bull, you know. So to me, I think that the market is in for a potential, um, you know, world of hurt as it tries to discover where the strike price of the Fed put is. In our opinion, it's twenty to thirty percent lower. And, and you know, do you do you think that the Fed will sort of err on the favor of trying to get that inflation down and let the stock market go down as much as thirty percent? Do you think they'll choose uh, inflation over asset uh, asset markets? Yeah, but by the time the stock market is down 30%, the Fed will very much pivot to being easy again, because um, it'll be pretty clear through the lens of financial conditions that, that, growth, we're right. on, yeah, that we're on a path towards something that is, is a lot worse than having bad inflation. And it's talking about you know, a, a, a slowdown well beyond trend um, in terms of growth. And again, let's, you know, a couple of other stats, you know, while we're still here, you know, it's, I think it's very likely that we're one thing we're talking about that by the end of the year that we're not talking about right now is you know sort of a potential recession next year, um, you know not not anything that's scary like the great financial crisis something that looks more like 2001, where you have this sort of overbuild of productive capacity that's chasing a goods consumption boom that in our opinion was not sustainable was obviously inflated as a function of a lot of the pandemic stimulus that we got. And a couple of data points to sort of um, lend credence to this developing view because it's not quite there yet. We don't have enough data to really put the stake in the ground there. The last two GDP reports, the inventory builds accounted for 96% of the headline GDP in, in Q3 and 71% of headline GDP in Q4. That's, that's those are really high numbers. Mm. You know, so it's telling you that they were starting to see this inventory build into what I believe, into what we believe at 42 Macro is an unsustainable level of goods consumption as evidenced by the most recent data. Um, and so in our opinion, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of mismatch out there with respect to where we see the economy headed, um, where we see Fed policy headed over the next few quarters, and ultimately sort of the positioning dynamics within the market. So um, could be a tale of, uh, could be a tale of two halves, um, if you will. All right. Well, certainly a lot, a lot for us to think on there, Darius. Thank you so much, as always, for all of that excellent insight. We appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for, for watching as well, as always, and for the fantastic questions. Uh, 
Ash will be back tomorrow with Tommy Thornton, so be sure to tune in. As always, the conversation uh, continues on the exchange on our website. So in the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.